Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Welcome to another episode of the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and I'm here again with Bishop Todd Hunter. Hello, Hello, everybody. Good to see you. And right now we are in the middle of our series uh, that's called Advent Hope in Harsh Times. Uh, We have interviewed two of our canon theologians, Emily McGowan and Esau McCulley, and as well as Kimberly Deckel, uh, who is an associate pastor at All Souls in Phoenix. And if you haven't listened to those, uh, I would say go back and listen to them. They're really good. Would yeah, you say yeah. so too? Yeah, okay. <laughs> they're on They're on the website, right? They can Yeah, that, yeah they can. Them. They're in your podcast feed or they're on the website. So go back and listen to them. They've been really, really uh, good. And we're kind of at the midpoint here of this series. And one thing I'm noticing, uh, and I wonder if you have thoughts about this, uh, Todd, but one thing I'm learning in this series as I hear people reflect on these themes is that um, as Americans... Specifically, I don't think we're very good at waiting. Yeah. We're not very good at suffering, if I can put right. it that way. Yeah, we're we're used to sort of getting things done. We're used to making things happen. You know, we we're used to like we're going to change the world. We're going to like make a good thing happen. So we're we're be we're a we're used to being able to leverage technology or knowledge or all kinds of other things to make good things happen. And uh, right now, we're, in more ways than ever, we're experiencing this inability right. to make a good thing happen. Like we, there's not enough technology. There's not enough knowledge. There's, there's, you know, this pandemic is affecting everyone. Um, a lot of the uh, injustice that we're seeing uh, is affecting lots of people. And there's, and so more and more, there's this uh, production of this inability to uh, fix things, which produces this, I think, experience of suffering. In us, and so these themes of Advent, of waiting, hope, yeah. and patience. I think in the past they've seemed passive, um, like we're not really doing anything. Yeah. It's almost like unfaithful. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the midst of this series, I'm learning that those things—patience, waiting, hope—they're uh, not passive at all, but in fact, vital, active uh, yeah. actions that we actually take in the present in order to put our hope in God and not in our own strength to kind of right. make good things happen. So. I don't know if you have thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, powerlessness or impotence or uh, lack of capacity, any of those kinds of things are just not very fun feelings. And they're right. like really challenging for leaders, right? Because like you said, mm. leaders' whole thing is we get things done, we change things, we fix what's broken. And uh, anybody like me who's in Perfectionistics Anonymous, you know, anybody who's a recovering <laughs> perfectionist knows that if you if you're a leader with a little bit of perfectionism or you know and some yeah. sense of like uh, just loving to get things done, yeah, waiting, patience, hope, it doesn't feel good. Like mm-hmm. like we don't want to live in anything that would require hope, right? We want to mm-hmm. live in fulfillment. We want to live in something like a reality that wouldn't even require yeah. hope. Um, so I think yeah. one of the things we've been learning, Ben, is that actually hope arises from and, you know, like occurs within realities um, that they just require hope. And that it's not Mm. like 
uh, hope is some spiritual thing, you know, outside of outside of real life. And yeah. as you and I were talking earlier a bit this morning, that as you say, waiting in patience is act is actually active. It's a turning yeah. your attention to another reality. With yeah. you're not denying what we might call uh, let's call it sort of human reality. We're not ever denying that Christians aren't dualists, mm. but it's within what might be a painful um, time that we're actively turning our attention to God and, th- and that yeah. that's what waiting and patience and hope yeah. is all about. I think of Simeon, classic, you know, Advent mm. reading yeah. of Simeon's waiting. Yes. Well, that's, uh, again, the whole series has been really uh, illuminating and helpful for me. And so uh, if you haven't listened to those first three episodes, go and do so. Um, we're going to move on. This is the fourth uh, episode in this series, and our guest today is the Reverend John Odom, who's the lead pastor at Cornerstone Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, John, welcome to the C4SO podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Yeah. It's great, great to, to have you, again. John. Yeah. You guys have um, joined me while I've been repainting my bathroom. I've been listening to oh. episodes. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> That's the funny thing about podcasts, isn't it? It's uh, I maybe have reflected on this before here, but it's a it's a really intimate uh, kind of medium where you're like you're with like your listeners, but in this asynchronous way, and so um, people yeah experience it like that. Where like yeah, every time I repaint my bath, every time I go to <laughs> do this uh, work on my house, I'm listening. Um, well, good. I'm glad you could join us today, John. Um, maybe just introduce yourself a little bit to us, um, who you are, what you find yourself doing, and maybe some family context, all that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm new to C4SO. Uh, in January, Bishop Todd ordained me as a priest. Uh, our church was officially adopted just uh, in the last couple of weeks at the diocesan convention. Uh, awesome. We were... We started as a United Methodist Church and have been on a journey uh, over Mm -hmm. the last handful of years. And uh, it's been just a great, great joy to get to know this tribe, get to know folks. I'm married to Emily. Uh, We've we've been together 18 years. We were high school sweethearts and uh, married coming up on 13. And we've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, a three-year-old, and then in February, uh, another kiddo will join the team. That is a full-time life right there, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Emily said the other day, you know, I think we may have been a little (laughs) overambitious. Yes. That's great. Starting a church, having a fourth, and then homeschooling along the way. Oh, homeschooling. Yeah. So you, that's, uh, there's some sort of trifecta. There's there's some sort of award for that. I'm almost sure (laughs) of it. Yeah. So you should be applying for those. Yeah, that's great. Um, John, glad you could be with us. Um, and uh, we're gonna, you're going to share uh, some of your story here, a little bit more of your story, uh, in a bit. Um, I want to set it up like this. You know, a lot of the a lot of the harsh times that we have been talking about are those that are affecting all of us uh, in some way or another. So obviously the pandemic, um, obviously the the protests, the political unrest, a lot of that stuff uh, is affecting all of us in various ways. Um, but of course, all of us also have harsh times that are more personal to us. And um, that that are stories that not everyone shares and not everyone uh, can resonate with, um, and so um, sharing those stories can sometimes just be a really helpful way of kind of recognizing how God meets us uh, in the midst of these things that don't affect all of us, but mm-hmm. only sometimes affect uh, us ourselves or you know our church or that kind of a thing. So, um, 
as we talked about this uh, series, uh, you you mentioned, hey, I, I think I could share a couple things that happened to us uh, recently that that might <laughs> that might qualify as harsh times, mm-hmm. um, and uh, kind of how you found hope in the midst of those. So, would you mind sharing some of that story that we've been talking about? Yeah, certainly. In uh, September, I turned thirty five and was reflecting on that year with my coach, and he said, uh, "What word would you use to describe this year?" And I said, "It's been a crucible." And in addition to COVID and all the other things that we've all experienced, there were two key events uh, for our family and for our church that really shaped this year. And one was the uh, unexpected loss of a pregnancy. Um, so I'll tell that story. And the other was uh, the, the shocking murder of a couple in our church. So um, I, can, wow. I can share about both of those. Yeah. So in September of last year, we were actually in the process of discerning whether or how to join C4SO. I was in New York with a group of leaders, and um, my wife was uh, 14 weeks pregnant at the time, and I'd gone on a hike. We're out in the Poconos enjoying creation, and I come back to three missed calls. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things you just, you, you have a premonition, this is bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emily had called, and when in, we were accustomed to uneventful pregnancies and she had gone in for a routine checkup and uh, without really knowing why we had lost the baby so mm-hmm. at, at 14 and a half weeks so I was just in a bit of a state of shock obviously she was and, and yeah. was without me so planes, trains yeah. and automobiles to get home and yeah. from New York to Tulsa and um, mm-hmm. you know walk in the door and I'm just holding my wife and we're standing uh, just mm-hmm. in a space of shock and hurt and disbelief yeah. uh, that we'd, we'd lost this little, this little life that we anticipated having a future with. Yeah. Very common experience, uh, but not one that had ever happened in our family. So yeah. we'd had three uh, successful pregnancies and, um, and it, was, it was heartbreaking. With, I was with the leaders and we began just to pray and intercede, Lord, it's, it's in your power to make a little heartbeat. Would you just do it? Mm. And I didn't have the nerve to pray it. Others were praying it on our behalf. And, mm. um, and uh, we, we came home, we went to the doctor and confirmed that there was still no heartbeat. Okay. And, uh, and we were just in shock and, and disbelief. So, mm. you know, for us immediately, our, our understanding of hope narrates how we process that new reality for us. Yeah. So after going to the doctor, it was time to, to talk to our big kids who were um, you know, eight and six at the time. And uh, we, we tried to be straightforward and factual with the kids and just we, we told them what happened, that there wasn't a heartbeat. And we told them how we were feeling, which was really sad. And we also told them that you know, when Jesus returns to make all things new, you'll get to meet your baby brother. Mm. And that our, our eschatology yeah. uh, was present through all of it. That, mm. um, and, and I'll share in a minute about the process of delivering our, our child and, and meeting him and how we processed that and talked about it. Mm. But from the first conversation with our children, it mattered to get Christian hope right. Yeah. Um, that this, even this little body will be raised again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's that. It just it just strikes me, um, John, that that um, that Christian hope is not some sort of pie in the sky. You know what I mean? Like like the, the, it's rooted in, um, and I, I I feel this just from the way that you uh, spoke about it. That it's not sort of wishful thinking. Like oh, you know, uh, he's an angel now, and you know, or or some, you know, something like that. That sometimes people say in really hard situations like that, um, that uh, is maybe meant to just paper over people's uh, hard feelings about it, you know, that that kind of a thing. But this is this is instead a word of concrete, specific, like theological hope. Yes, I'm saying this is yes. this is what we believe God is going to do. He's going to raise mm-hmm. the dead. We really believe this. Yes, including yeah. this little body, including yeah. this little body. Yeah. We never had a chance to meet this this little person. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Wow. So, so we were we were in the hospital and uh, anticipating Emily was going to have to deliver, wow. and uh, we're sitting there anticipating what's to come, mm-hmm. and uh, I just I wanted to write something. Uh, I was aware of the people in our church who cared for us. I was also aware how lots of other people have gone through this and probably got terrible advice or unhelpful <laughs> theological comments from people. Right. I just thought, I think for my own benefit and the benefit of those near us, I want to tell people how I'm processing this. Mm-hmm. And so from from the hospital room, I, I did a little bit of writing and... Uh, uh, I'm, in fact, I'm just going to share a bit of what I wrote um, when that happened. And part of what I say is, um, because our son was nearly 15 weeks, we have to deliver the baby, and that's today. When, the, when he arrives, the nurses will let us bathe him and hold him. We'll honor our son's little body. He mattered, and he matters. We thank God for him. Um, it's a vulnerable thing to bring a little human into the world. And it's a miracle and grace of God that any of us make it. We don't blame God. We aren't angry that we may be later. My working philosophy in life is to give God all the credit for what's good and none of the blame for what's bad. In a fallen world, death is our chief enemy, but death will not win forever. And then, Ben, this gets to what you're saying. In, in tragedy, like the real stuff of life, our theology matters. And I wrote just mm-hmm. that. In these moments, our theology matters. I don't believe heaven needed another angel. Mm. I don't believe everything happens for a reason in a simplistic, Mm. deterministic sense. I don't believe there's a clear why behind this as if God orchestrated the loss of our child. He's not a sadist. He doesn't do that. I believe creation's groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, Romans 8. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, 1 Corinthians 15. Believe Jesus will return to renew the earth, to wipe away the tears, and to make everything all the more beautiful for having once been so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the anchor for our soul. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard from people after sharing that, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of comments and shares, uh, how relieved they were oh. in thinking about their own stories. Yeah. Uh, wow. That... They, they were trying to force themselves into seeing a silver lining prematurely. Yeah. Uh, or the heaven needs another angel kind of talk, or God always right. has a plan. Mm-hmm. But actually, I found that our, our hope gave us permission to grieve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, it actually liberated us to really look at our losses 
like right in the face and, and feel just overcome with sadness about it, but not despair. Mm. Um, hmm. and, and I didn't, I didn't know how much that we would continue to need to exercise those muscles as our yeah. year went on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by that. Hope gives you permission to grieve. Um, because I think, uh, and we've ta- been talking about this throughout the series, that I think the temptations for us when we encounter things like this, that we, like tragic, bad things, you know, categorically bad, that we can't do anything about, is we either jump to a silver lining so we don't have to feel the pain of it, right? We try to deny mm-hmm. the badness of the bad thing. Um, and I think the reason we do that is because we're afraid that if we acknowledge the badness of the bad thing, we're going dispa- to disappear into our despair. We're yeah. just going to get buried by it. Or get mad at God or something. Yeah, lose yeah. our faith, you know, all of that kind of thing. But what, what you're saying here is that actually the way out of that trap is to actually uh, like lean into Christian hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does clarify for us. Like, do I believe in the resurrection of the dead mm-hmm. or not? You know, is this is this part of my, you know, just the, a belief system I carry around? Or like, mm-hmm. do I really believe this? Yeah. Yeah. Really I think another us. thing that was helpful for me in the middle of it was using Jesus as a way of thinking about how is God postured toward our grief right now? Mm-hmm. And so especially... Especially Jesus with Lazarus, yes. uh, he wept, yeah. knowing of the resurrection to come, his own capacities for restoration and renewal. Yeah. He still weeps out of love, yeah. and so Emily and I found ourselves comforted with the notion that God is joining us in our grief. Yes, and so Romans eight, the Spirit, you know, groaning, uh, praying on yes. our behalf with groans deeper than words. That's right. The intercession of Jesus, just pulling for us at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an old professor, Bob Stamps, who would use this just a pocket prayer. Jesus of Nazareth, high priest of heaven, hold this person in the strength of your prayers. Mm. And mm. we found ourselves allowing ourselves just to be held in the strength of the, the prayers of the Trinity for us. Yeah that we were joined in our grief by God, and, and that mattered. All right, everyone, it is time once again for the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight, where we highlight the specific ministry that we're praying for this week in our diocesan cycle of prayer. This week, we're praying for Good Shepherd Anglican Church in Longview, Texas, led by Britt Norval, and he has joined us to share briefly about what's going on right now and how we can pray specifically for them. Britt, welcome to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be here. Yes. I recently learned that uh, Longview is halfway between Dallas and Shreveport, which is what you just told me. Yeah. So um, I've never been to that part of Texas, I don't think. They call it the Pine Curtain. We're behind the Pine Curtain. (laughs) The Pine Curtain, okay, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of pine trees. Yeah, but yeah. between Dallas and here, they're okay. going to hit this like wall of pine trees that runs all the way down to the coast. So. Oh wow, very nice. I mean, it's all not right. an actual wall, you know. Yeah, <laughs> nobody actually built one. <laughs> it's a natural phenomenon that. Okay, all right. Well, uh, these are the questions we always ask um, on this segment of the podcast. Britt, can you share with us one thing that you're encouraged by right now? 
Uh, I, I'm encouraged by, you know, COVID. Uh, I think my, my encouragement and my challenge are similar in some ways, kind of the two sides of a coin. Uh, we have not really lost anybody through this whole COVID <laughs> situation. I mean, we, you know, we're on Zoom, so we yeah. don't see people regularly, but we, we've had pretty much everybody sticking with us. And even the people that aren't doing Zoom are with us. And so <laughs> I think that puts us in a position where I feel a lot of stability in that part of us. Yeah. And I'm excited and encouraged by the potential for newness, for what may come of all this. Um, and, uh, and, you know, possible changes disruptions mm -hmm. in our stasis uh that just like ways that that the uh the disruption of covid may may have been good for us and we just don't hmm. know it yet i mean Interesting. I, it sounds like yeah. a, a strange thing um yeah. i'm thinking about advent a lot and sort of this yeah. god being hidden but not absent and that he's hmm. always at work and yes you know I, I feel this sense of things needing to change in some ways for us as hmm. a church and I don't know what that is, but I feel this sort of like yeah. excitement about that. Yeah, some opportunities perhaps mm -hmm. in the in the midst of the disruption. Yes. Um, so, what's one challenge that you're facing right now? So, I would say the challenge is the other side of that coin, which is right. what does it mean to grow in the midst of a pandemic as a mm. church who's meeting yeah. virtually every week? Yeah. And yeah. and you know, we started the year. I've been here two years now. And we started 2020 and it felt like we had a lot of momentum after that first year. I kind of felt like I knew what was going on. The church here kind of was ready to sort of hand over the reins and then COVID hit and mm. that all just got disrupted. And so mm. that's the, the, the negative side of the, like on one side, it's encouraging that there's some disruption that I think will be good for us to face. But the yeah. bad side of it is that it's disrupted and I, I don't mm -hmm. know what healthy, community and growth really looks like right now. And I feel yeah. a lot of, uh, I don't know, I feel a little anxiety about that at yeah. the same time that I feel encouraged by it. So, yeah. Yeah. I resonate a lot with that. Uh, thinking about our church as well. Uh, in light of this, Britt, how can we be praying for you and for Good Shepherd? Uh, the big, the big two things that are the sort of, it's again, uh, it's patience Mm -hmm. that, that we would just be patient with the fact that, you know, we're here in the midst of this. Um, I heard Matthew McConaughey, who is actually from Longview. So that's really, oh, is he really? yeah. Okay, strangely. yeah. Um, I, I heard him say on Colbert the other night that it's uh, we're in survival, not thrive. We're, we're all surviving. We're not thriving right now. Right. Right. Um, I don't always take advice from Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> but you know, this, well, he's from it, Longview. It, it worked here. Yeah, and, yeah, it worked. and so like having patience with this as we just are trying yeah. to sort of survive it, but also the other side of that is then having courage when, when we see what needs to be done, mm. even when it's difficult, even when it's challenging to have the courage yes. to go and to do that thing and mm. that there would be provision for those things, you know, people, yes. Yes. um, and, and finances and, yes. and, all that needed. So awesome. All right. Yep. Well, thanks for sharing all that, Britt. And thanks for joining us today. Um, listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Good Shepherd Anglican Church or contribute to their work, check out the link in the show notes. Britt, we'll talk to you next time. All right. Peace. Thanks, Ben. Peace to Bye -bye. you. I think a nice 
thread here, Ben and John, is uh, our thread throughout these podcasts is we've we've touched on this thing of eschatology, maybe every episode, but if not every Probably, episode, yeah. most every episode. Yeah. And I think the gift that you were giving people, John, and what you wrote, it's you know kind of like that old saying in you know country music is three chords and the truth. Um, something about telling a truthful story like that is very moving to people, not in a cheesy way, but it's like enlightening moving. You know what I mean? It like mm. it causes a a new reality, new hope to shine on people. And I don't think I've said this been in our other podcasts, but you know, as a 19-year-old kid, you know, the doctrine of of eschatology was the rapture. And, you know, we had, we had like, posters on our wall with buses without drivers and, you know, yeah, yeah. airplanes without pilots. And, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I say that really uh, warmly and, you know, it's just kind of funny to me. But, that as, but I mean to say by that, that eschatology is not like a weird, this weird doctrine Mm -hmm. And neither of it is escapism. Right. But I think what we've heard from John uh, today and from others is that the, the doctrine or the idea of a really sure consummation to come provides us a way of being in the world. It's not yes. escapism. It's not a weird thing. It's, a, it's like a capacity or power to be. You know, since this is football season, if you're going into a football game two or three touchdowns behind in the fourth quarter, but you somehow knew that you were going to win. Now you might not know how you might not how, you know, you're going to get a sick, a pick six or mm -hmm. something, but you know, somehow events were going to unfold that you knew you're going to win. And I think when we can live that way, it, it again, it, it sort of grounds us in a way of being, as John was saying, in these um, incredibly hard times. Yeah, it does make a difference. I uh, I sometimes I'll record a soccer. I'm I'm more of a soccer guy, so yeah. I'll sometimes record a soccer game because they oftentimes happen during church um, for my favorite team, and then I'll forget that I had it recorded and I was going to watch it later, and I'll accidentally <laughs> see the score, check yeah. the score, yeah. and every once in a while, like I'll do that and I'll I'll think, oh shoot, I know the score now. But then, like when they go behind during my watching of the recording, I'm like, eh, I think th I think things are going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate yeah. uh, growing up in Tulsa, and I went to Oral Roberts University. Mm. Uh, you know, I grew up in the TV preacher kind of world where people have charts and they know everything. Yeah, there can be a kind of eschatological disillusionment where you mm. think, like, well, I think that they are presuming to know too much. So I'm not going to worry about the future. I'm just going to yeah. worry about now. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, with that as my background, I appreciate N.T. Wright saying, you know, with regard to Christian hope, we have signposts pointing into the fog. We don't know everything. Mm. But there are some things that we can come down and, uh, and really hold on to, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, yes. Revelation mm -hmm. 21 and 22, mm -hmm. where we just keep them in our back pocket. Yeah. And in tragedy, we know like there are some things we can really hold on to. You yeah. don't know everything God's going to do or his timing, but there's yeah. some things that we can really hold on to to anchor us in grief yeah. and storms of life. Yeah. Yeah. There's a deep comfort in that. I, and I, um, I remember uh, my dad died when I was 25 suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I remember th those passages in, in particular, like they just came to my mind. And I found such incredible uh, comfort in 
just knowing, oh, that, like the dead are going to be raised. Like it really, you know what I mean? But it made it so mm-hmm. real having to go through a tragedy like that. And I hear that's what you're describing as well, John, of just like, oh, this, I'm, I'm now, this isn't a, a nice idea that I think I believe. Now I'm, I'm face to face with a reality in which uh, I need hope. And so mm-hmm. I, I need to be sure uh, of something, you know, even mm. though you know, it might be a signpost, like you said, pointing into the fog. I think that's a good metaphor. I think there's something really powerful about particularizing and appropriating hope in your own story of loss. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, my son, Philip, like Philip will be raised from the dead. Mm. Or even thinking about, you know, Revelation 21 and 22, thinking about particular places in our world where won't it be such a gift to see that renewed? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, intersections or addresses or places that are associated with trauma for us mm-hmm. to see even that little corner of the cosmos renewed. Yeah. What, a, what a gift that will be. Yeah. So, Beautiful. John, if what you wrote there was, um, you know, like a country song, uh, Three Chords and the Truth, give us, give us an example of just two or three comments you got back of how people were helped by you telling the truth of hope in your harsh times. Yeah, well, I think there was a relief from the um, uh, the little trite sayings about heaven needed another angel, yeah. or God does think God always does everything for a reason, or He's in a better place. I think people felt liberated to grieve even in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But then I even think they felt um, like they had company in their grief mm-hmm. in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there was there was some unlearning and. Uh, uh, just the emotional health that the gospel gives us, yeah. being able to grieve and hope. Uh, yeah. I think that was that was resonant across many of the comments. Mm. Um, yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, well, maybe John, let's turn to the other story that you um, were talking about um, uh, sharing with us, uh, because I think it, it's an interesting contrast. You'll say share a little bit more about it, but you know, like I think when there's an unexplained, you know, like the, the losing your baby was this, like, who knows what happened? Like, we don't really know. We live in a fallen world, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, you're talking about a, a, like a murder. Like, that's another kind of uh, harsh time to go through, right? Because there's this personal aspect to it. Um, mm-hmm. So share a little bit of that story and maybe how walking through that in hope, like how, how, did, how did that work for you? Yeah, so for context, the, the couple that was killed was their founding couple in our church, uh, that he was going to be our, our vestry chair, our board chair, starting oh, just the oh, following wow. week. Oh, gosh. Uh, I had known them since I was a 12-year-old. Um, they did our marriage counseling. So people we, we had really walked with in life. Mm. So a Monday morning or Tuesday morning began for me with a phone call. Um, Matt Carney, the the songwriter has that lyric, I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got two of those this year. And so uh, I got a call that a Tulsa police, a homicide detective was coming to my office and began this conversation with, there was maybe a gas leak. They did appear to be dead and the homicide detective shows up and it's clear uh, this is a very different uh, situation. So, Uh, They had been shot, and uh, their son was found to be uh, the perpetrator of this. We didn't know that in the day. Uh, We just knew 
uh, Joe and Beverly are, are gone. And so I find myself sitting in the office and I, I texted my wife and one of my best friends and said, what would a great pastor do in this situation? And, uh, and I didn't know. <laughs> so I went down to, to the police station and just yeah. camped out for the day and listened and fielded texts and phone calls. And uh, I was aware it was out there. And so we, we put together a service of lament and intercession just on the fly. And a uh, hundred folks or so from our church got together that night. And, um, and I just invited the church to name our, our grief. And so, again, I'm, mm. this is my style. I, I wrote something as I invited people uh, to pray. And after the service, I said, tonight over a hundred folks at our church gathered to pray and worship and comfort one another. In moments like this, Christians don't live in denial or give in to despair, nor do we rush to a premature state of bliss. Never tell anyone after a loss they should be glad because their loved one's in a better place. Mm -hmm. In these moments, the Bible teaches us to lament. We name our wounds and grieve. This was wrong. This was tragic. This was not okay. And we're hurting. And their friends and family are hurting. And uh, I just, I walked through for people what we did as a church, how we lamented and uh, interceded. And so praying for the family, for helpers, for friends. Uh, and, and we were in the middle of a series studying the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And I said, so following the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to pray for the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we joined the church through the ages just praying how long. Mm-hmm. And I think ha- being on our toes um, our, our sense of hope and anticipation of justice liberated us to lament and to grieve. Uh, but it also, like, our ethics were guided by our hope in those moments. Mm-hmm. Like, that uh, it's not enough to just pray for the family and the friends uh, who are in shock and disbelief. We have to pray for the person who did this, not knowing at the time that it was uh, family. Wow. And so, in, in real time, we had to, uh, we had to exercise uh, those muscles. Mm. What was so amazing to me was, and I, I'm not sure I've shared this publicly more than maybe once, is not a month before it happened, I was at uh, lunch with the man who was killed, with Joe. And Joe told me, he said, John, Jesus has got me seriously rethinking some things. Because he says... He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, do not resist an evil person. And, and Joe was just candidly reflecting for me on what that meant for him, not knowing uh, how his own story would play out in the, in the next month. And it really served as a, as a model as we, you know, the day before we shut down for COVID, we held their uh, funeral, 1,500 people or so were there. And, and our, our grief and our hope motivating our ethics uh, gave us an opportunity to invite everyone just to examine the destructive capacities within rather than just rushing to blame. Um, it was really remarkable how God used the moment to call us all toward greater faithfulness. Yeah. Maybe how, I think that praying, praying for the perpetrator and praying for our enemies um, I know that's difficult, obviously, um, 
but maybe give us a, a, a picture because I think sometimes we have this image. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. I think sometimes we have this image of praying for the perpetrator or praying for our enemies as like we're just praying for some sort of generalized blessing to settle upon them. We're praying that they would just mm-hmm. feel good and, and, you know, get a lot of money or, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm being a little silly, but you know what I mean? Like we have this sense of that's what it means to pray for our enemies, pray for the perpetrator. Do you have... How, how, as you, as you did pray those prayers, I don't know if you have, or if you can share this, but like, how did you pray? Like, what did you pray for the perpetrator of this, of this crime? Well, what I'm saying, what I'm going to suggest comes from a place of having done a lot of inner work. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those folks who are listening, who have their own perpetrators and their own wounds to name, this is a process to work through with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, uh, trying to get to a place of empathy for the perpetrator. Like, oh my goodness. What on earth, what, what lies have you come to believe? Hmm. I mean, what, what a dark and lonely place did you get to that you believed this made, the mo- this made sense to do? Hmm. And seeing them in that way is a, it, like, I mean, they certainly bear ultimate responsibility, but in yeah. some ways is a, they're a victim of, of lies of the enemy. They've get, allowed themselves to be given over. Mm. And so moving to a place of intercession is, Lord Jesus, would you break through the darkness of this person's mind and heart? Yeah. Um, would you just rip apart the lies and the narratives that he has accepted that led him to make these choices? Mm. Um, it, you know, it, it leads to a place of holy anger and prayer. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in my own life, like just renouncing the forces of darkness and pleading with God to deliver people. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, the brilliance of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, it's one thing to say, don't murder, but he says, don't be angry. And it mm. invites God to reverse engineer the future murders that we'll commit by mm. uh, healing those wounds that we let fester. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, getting to a place of compassion and empathy and praying for the perpetrator, I think is a big breakthrough. Yeah. For many people, it may be the, the road to it, praying like that might be, Lord, would you help me to just hate them a little bit less <laughs> right? Baby so steps. that I can begin to pray for them? Or would you help me to want to pray for them? Yeah. Just puts us on a trajectory toward healing, I think. Yes. So, John, how what, could you say a bit more about this? <clears throat> One of the things I think I'm learning in this podcast series is the importance of naming what's real. You talked about naming grief or, you know, in the context of this series, like naming the harshness. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think I'm really liking about this is I think one of the big enemies of Christian spirituality in the way of Jesus is that life can get going so fast and so complex and so full that life gets fuzzy. Mm. And if you allow grief or harshness to reign, to remain fuzzy within an overall like fuzzy reality, it's uh, not a good recipe. So mm-hmm. say a bit more about how you and the church experience the goodness of like naming grief and that that's not like unfaith or something to name the harshness. Mm. Yeah, well, certainly people in my part of the world or who have been in some yeah. you know, charismatic word of faith traditions find it right. very, very difficult to practice candor even with themselves. Right. And a mentor t- told me in my, in my late teens that God is not threatened by honesty. Certainly we see that in the kind of uh, 
dangerous at times prayers that David prays, you know, bashing the heads of the children of his enemies against a wall. Um, I just, I have found it to be true uh, that Christians should be friends of reality. Right. Amen. And that it's, it's not an unspiritual thing to tell the simple truth about ourselves and about others. Uh, and, And actually I find it quite, quite liberating to give up the burden of pretense. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the Bible certainly gives us these models of just of of candor and honesty, and it, it's emotionally healthy, it's spiritually liberating. Um, but some people just may need to know God is not threatened by you telling the truth about yourself. Yeah. Yes. Nor He's not surprised either. Mm. It's like ah, good, you're beginning to live in the light. And I also think that's First John. If we if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one yeah. another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. It's just such a gift to know we can stop pretending. At times, it's it's scary, but it's just better to tell the truth yeah. and to be candid. And I think that's one of the reasons I felt this urge to process some of these things: uh, the loss of our baby. And uh, just being naming honest emotions about the loss of this couple in our church in public, mm-hmm. uh, not doing it, not using Facebook or social media as my therapist is appropriate levels of <laughs> vulnerability. Um, but just, I just wanted to be able to have open and honest dialogue. And I think people found that uh, helpful. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm struck by two things there. One, one, it's a, burden to have to pretend things aren't as they are yeah there's mm-hmm. a there's a deception of ourselves and of others that goes into it that that is uh it puts a burden on us um that mm-hmm. it's it's a lot it's just, there's just freedom in telling the truth um i hear that and then um the other thing that struck me as you were uh talking was the um the connection i can't remember now what was the last thing you said there, John? You were Whatever it was, it was really good. It yeah. was so good. It was really good. That's funny. It just left my brain. Anyway, maybe it'll come back to me. Hmm. I want to draw attention to connection between two things. So, hmm. um, Maybe one last question before we end here, John. Um, did anything, as you walked through these things, uh, did anything surprise you? Was anything harder than you thought it would be or easier than you thought it would be? Did anything... Um, sort of take you by surprise. Yeah, in the loss of our baby, um, one of the things that it surprised me what a gift it was to be upheld by others in the church. And mm-hmm. in, in the absence of getting to hold our baby, you know, after it was born, we, we did hold the baby in the hospital, but we didn't take our baby home. Boy, it mattered like to be held by our friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the little the little gifts of you know I was in New York when it happened and our friends showed up with coffee and snacks and flowers. It didn't matter what it was. It just mattered that there was an incarnational witness to the love of our church, mm-hmm. and it surprised me how much it mattered. Mm-hmm. And it it's, it prompts me to physically show up mm-hmm. when others go through tragedy. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of those things is, is um, 
a, a text is not enough. Showing mm. up somehow incarnationally mm. with stuff, with physical presence, I think really matters. Uh, wow. we, we gathered with our church the Sunday after um, we lost our baby. And boy, it was, it, it was such a gift to me to see my friends hold my wife, hug my wife. Mm. And so, but all of it, all of it is on the same theme of embodiment. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's why our baby's body mattered. I mean, right, my right. friend's bodies being present to us, we live in a, like an incarnational world. It's not ethereal and spiritual. And so I think yeah. the gift of bodily presence mattered. Mm. Yeah. I think the absence of bodily presence in the case of the couple that was killed is what made their death so difficult as there was no opportunity for a saying goodbye. Yeah. Um, but that's where we appeal to ultimate hope. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was, it was a lesson in embodiment and, hmm. and <laughs> theology of the body in hmm. the middle of it. Yeah. I, th I think the other thing that really did surprise me in both cases was how far eschatological hope gotten, had gotten into my mind and my heart, and for Emily as well. Hmm. And one thing that I would just encourage uh, you know, all of our, our listeners to do is to normalize our eschatological language um, hmm. in everyday speech. And so, you know, with my children, drive by a cemetery, <laughs> talk about how that's going to be a fun place to be when Jesus returns to <laughs> renew all things. Yeah. Um, using language like, like when Jesus returns to renew all things, to restore yeah. all things, talking about the resurrection of the body. Yeah. You know, we lost both of my grandmothers in the last 12 months. Talk about, you know, mm -hmm. Grandma Ree is waiting on her resurrection body. Grandma mm -hmm. Ruth is, is waiting yeah. on her resurrection body. It's going to be yeah. so fun when Jesus returns yeah. and we get to meet her again. Yes. So I think normalizing that language yeah. Even in conversationally, not just saving it for uh, in being in the church building, mm. I think really allowed that to ready us to process things uh, yes. as we were going through them. Mm. Yeah, that's really great. It's so hopeful. Uh, I remember what it was before, uh, John. And so I'll just highlight this and then um, ask some practical questions here as we close. Um, but it struck me that you naming your grief publicly uh, was both healing and helpful for you and also was a way of leading, was also a way of spreading healing and spreading freedom for others to know, oh, this terrible thing happened, but you bearing witness to your pain publicly, naming reality yourself, that's what you need to do to heal and what, what you need to do to encounter the comfort of God in the midst of that. But it also then gave freedom to others to be able to do that as well. Mm -hmm. So I think... I think because we don't know what to do with grief, especially here in the West or especially as Americans, like I think oftentimes we get turned in on ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, we just want to spend time alone if we're, if we're grieving because we don't know what it, what it would be like to, to be in public. And so um, I'm just hearing a lot of encouragement in the way that you walked through it. It's not a private matter. It's something we're walking through as a church um, in both cases, you know, both losing the baby and also uh, the, the, the killing. Yeah, I think something that's important to, to name in there is crises like that by unhealthy leaders could also be used in an exploitive way. Mm, yeah. I think what was especially helpful about it is that, that public processing 
has to be anchored by appropriate private processing with trusted people. So to do it just out in public and Mm -hmm. not really deal with it on your own is kind of weaponizing grief in an unhealthy way. And so there are appropriate boundaries around all of that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, John, I could imagine maybe some of our listeners wanting to uh, get in touch with you. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, and so I apologize. We can edit this part out if you don't want to do this. But um, how how would people um, do that? Maybe if they want, even just if they want to see what you wrote. Um, I, I think I'm, I was struck by those, um, you know, the the writing that you gave to your church. Um, I think those are really helpful examples of leading through um, crises like this. Um, what would be a good way to uh, touch base with you? Yeah, I can share links with you of, okay. uh, so that you can share how we processed that. Great. Uh, people can also get in touch if they want to through our church website, cornerstonetulsa.org. Very good. All right. And I'd be happy to visit. Very good. All right. Well, we'll put, uh, if you are interested in seeing some of those things and uh, getting in touch with John, perhaps, um, we will put those links in the show notes. So just go to the C4SO website, look for the podcast, look for the show notes. They should also be in your podcast player. So, You know what I love about this podcast, Ben, besides you being with you <laughs> once a week? Yeah, what is it? Is um, I learn something every time. Yeah, me too. And I, there a lot I learned from John today. Thank you, John. But one sort of lovely, pithy thing that I'll carry around with me, John, you're talking about the importance of us being with each other bodily. What a mm. lovely thought that we carry hope in our body. Mm-hmm. And like we bring it into a situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, that's a very cool thought. Yes. So yeah, like I've, Again, that hope isn't some mental ideal. Yeah, it's that, not saying the perfect thing. Yeah. Yeah, just showing up is an act of hope. Yeah. Man, that's present. it. People people probably said foolish things, but what I re- <laughs> <laughs> what I remember is hugs. Yeah. 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 What what I remember yeah. is, you know, the 100 people who showed up and we wept together that night at a service of lament. Yeah. It was it, man, the physical presence, such a gift. Yeah. yeah. Part of the reason this pandemic I think is so difficult um that's right. We who have an incarnational faith. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it, it has been really difficult to try to do this stuff on zoom and virtually yeah. and all that stuff. So mm. anyway, may it come to an end quickly. Amen. Lord, Amen. How long? Thank you, <laughs> John. It's uh, really lovely to um, have some narratives, have some story to help us think about hope in harsh times. Thanks so much. Yeah. It's an honor. Thank you. again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.